As you find your seat, you can go ahead and pull out a copy of Scripture. We're going to turn our attention to God's Word as we continue in worship this morning um, each week. So glad to uh, be together in this place. Uh, heard that there was some fun that was happening last uh, Sunday night uh, with our uh, ladies. And um, if you weren't there, ladies, there was a uh, cornhole tournament that um, uh, I guess was a success. So I think we're uh, looking to maybe do that again sometime. So uh, that, was, uh, that was fun. And um, I heard that they blew us away, men, with the chili. Uh, there were 13 chilies that they had. So I think we only had five or six that made it to ours. So, um, but uh, to be expected. And I, like I said, I, I still think that the, some of the ladies made our chili as well. But um, that's all right. We don't. Uh, we didn't have any any uh, refs or uh, yeah. Um, weren't checking into any of that. Well, this morning as we get into God's word, I'm excited to look at the passage that we're looking at this morning. And um, if I can, I'd love to have a little bit of a sort of preamble to the uh, passage that we're going to look at. Um, if you know the book of John, which we've been studying, we've been in this book of John uh, for um, since the fall, and uh, it's going to take us a better part of a year to go through it. We're just walking uh, chapter by chapter, uh, paragraph by paragraph through John's gospel. It is the account by one of Jesus' closest earthly friends, and it shows us just an incredible picture of who Jesus is. And the whole point that John wrote his gospel is that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah and that we would have life in his name. And one of the things that John says at the end is he says that there's many more things that could have been written about Jesus, right? I think we understand that and know that. And as we approach the passage this morning, I think it's helpful for us to know that Jesus did a lot of things that weren't written down by John or that weren't even captured by Matthew and Mark, right? We don't have a play-by-play, minute-by-minute account of his entire life. So there were other miracles, there were other teachings, other moments and things that happened in the life of Jesus. And since we started this uh, journey through John, I knew we were going to come across this passage here at the beginning of John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles open, you can open up and you can see it. And um, I think, for, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think all of our copies of Scripture this morning have the beginning of John chapter 8, but there's this little sort of bracket that is, uh, is written there. And so here's the thing. We have to kind of deal with this bracket this morning before we, uh, we go on. And I have wrestled with this. I've been wrestling with this as to how are we going to handle this passage when we come across it. Let me explain and sort of unpack what, what it is uh, or why, why we're talking about this this morning. Um, it, it actually starts in 753 and goes through uh, chapter uh, verse 11 of chapter 8, um, but notice the little indication my Bible says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 and 811. Real quickly, um, just to kind of revisit how we got our copies of Scripture here this morning, right? This isn't John, like what you're holding, John didn't write that down. There's been a, right? Okay, I think we know this, right? John didn't write what you're holding in your hand. Um, that, there's a lot of time that's transpired since then. He did write down in pen um, the original words of Scripture, and we hold to a verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, that in its original form and, 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 and being inspired by the Holy Spirit, that all of the words were given by God through men and, and, and were recorded. What happened, though, is that when God wrote something, some other people wanted to read it, so they started to copy it. We call those manuscripts. And so you, there wasn't a, a photocopier you know, at your office that you could just, hey, let me borrow that. Let me just copy that. I'll bring that back, right? You had to, they actually were written down and copied by hand. And so there's all these manuscripts. And 
without getting into too much detail, I mean, we have thousands and thousands of New Testament manuscripts. Eventually, uh, people wanted to, uh, hey, I want to read that, and there's copies available, but that's not in my language. So they got translated. And so we see translation happening. And so, and then uh, Gutenberg invented the printing press, and now all of a sudden it's way easier to get copies of Scripture. And so the copies that we're holding here um, are uh, both copied and translated from the original language. Here's the thing is that there's this passage here and it's familiar to many of us and this is the part that I think makes it a little bit tricky is this the story at the beginning of John chapter 8 is the woman caught in adultery and Jesus's response the grace that he shows her the words that he speaks there in that moment are incredible. In fact, it's one of my uh, favorite stories um, uh, of Jesus. I love the picture that we have there of Jesus. But as we come across this, it's what does it mean that the earliest manuscripts do not record this, this passage? Let me tell you what, it, what, it, what that means, is that the copies that I'm talking about, we don't see this story show up in the manuscripts of John's gospel until the 5th century. There was four centuries of copies being given, and then all of a sudden this kind of shows up. When it does show up, there's this kind of little uh, asterisk next to it. All of the copies they have, or most of them, have little indicators kind of saying and questioning, like, hey, this kind of, we're not sure about this one, or we're not sure about this part. And, um, and there's actually five different locations in the book of John that this story shows up. So it's not just here, like this is where it kind of landed and has been for a very long time, but there's this copy here. And so my, my approach this week has been, and, and, and we have to kind of deal with it, right? Before we even get into, is like, are we going to preach this? Like, is this, because my thing is, is like, is this the word of God, right? Like, I don't ever just stand up here and, and, and open up a, a compelling article for you guys, like an account, even if it's a historical, a true account, I never open that up and just say, hey, let me preach this and preach it. Every time we open up God's words, like these are God's words for us and we preach it as such, and so i am kind of been wondering this week is like, is this actually the word of God or is this a story that kind of made it in? And the reality is, is this very well could be true. It could be a historical account. It probably is. There's a good chance that it is. But I hate to break your hearts. I really don't think that it belongs in or is part of John's gospel. I just don't. It doesn't meet all of the other qualifications that we do for scripture and we treat it every, every so often. And that might beg the question, well, why is it in our, doesn't that make it super confusing to have it in our Bible today? Like, why don't they just take it out? And, and to that, I would say, you are right. I think they should. <laughs> I think they should move it down to the footnote and have it in the footnotes, and it can kind of be there. Uh, but the Roman Catholic Church made the decision at the Council of Trent that it was part of the Latin Vulgate and that it was going to be in there and that to go against it would be to go against the Word of God. And so for a long, long time, English copies of, uh, well, the translations and then the Latin version and then eventually uh, the English version have carried it. And so it's just kind of tradition at this point to put it in. Um, again, just because it's there doesn't mean that, like, the fact that it's there in your English copy doesn't mean that it is the Word of God. And so because there's enough kind of shadow or sort of a doubt around it, because there is, you know, sort of this little asterisk, it's just really hard to get up here and preach this passage as if it happened. And here's why I wanted to take just a minute out of our sermon, or the sermon this morning to explain all that, 
is because I don't want you ever having doubt about the copy of scripture that you have. I mean, here's the, the thing that it should actually increase your, uh, your trust in the copy of scripture that you have because we have so many manuscripts that we can do this kind of assessment. We can see and understand and know, is, is this actually the word of God? Is this what was actually recorded? Are these the words? And I just want to tell you they are. Again, without getting into all of it, there are thousands and thousands of manuscripts to compare, right? And so if a thousand people uh, wrote down, if I, if I kind of want to communicate a message to you and I had you all write it down, and, and then at the end of it, we all compare notes and there's like all of you got it except for two, who would we go with? Who do we think is probably the right, <laughs> the right person, right? We're probably going to go with the majority and, and assume that two of you kind of, you know, just mis mixed up a word or didn't spell it quite right or, or whatever. We have, because of the breadth, we have and can trust uh, what we have. And so um, I'm not saying there's nothing in here that's heretical. There's nothing in here that's unorthodox. In fact, it's a great illustration of some of the other truths about who Jesus is. So can you still read this and benefit from it? For sure. Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't read it. I'm not saying that, that anything. Um, again, I think part of the part that my heart was struggling with this time is just the sentimental value that it has for it. I love this story. I love it. But I think if we're being faithful to the text that we have, that I don't know that it belongs here in John's gospel. And um, as you're going to see in a minute, it really breaks up the whole flow of what John is communicating. So even if it does uh, belong or, or somewhere, it, uh, it certainly doesn't go here in, uh, in this place. It connects a little bit, but the language is different. I mean, it's just, it doesn't sound like John's writing. I mean, there's all sorts of like indicators that you're like, I just don't think this should be there. So... Hopefully that's clear and, and helps us. That's kind of the place I wanted to start this morning. And so if you were coming in this morning super excited because this is your favorite part of all of John, I'm so sorry to bust that bubble, okay? Can we just like let out a collective sigh? Like, oh, can we just, you, yeah, I, just, I was gonna give you a little moment to do that. Yeah, sorry. But I think what we're gonna see this morning is that as we continue on, again, there's nothing that's contained here that is only here that we don't learn. And actually, that would be more of a case for um, concern if, it, if, in fact, it was. I think it's a great picture of what Jesus and how Jesus responds. And, and um, you know, because it's such a compelling story, I think it makes sense for why it may have been added. So just to recap, is it historical? Possibly. Does it add to or sort of give us a picture? For sure. But is it the word of God? We don't know. And there's enough doubt on there that I think it's best or prudent for us to pass on. And then um, someday, you know, we'll find out if that was the right move or not. So I'm, I'm willing to put, uh, put some chips in that, that passage. So let's continue on then and let's look, scan forward. We're going to begin in verse 12 this morning. Well, saying all that, let me, uh, let me just kind of ask this. Um, you don't have to put your hand up. Um, although maybe you own it at this point. When you were a kid, uh, there's some of us in this room that were afraid of the dark and others that that really wasn't a thing, right? Some of us, you know who you were. Some of you were deathly afraid of the dark. Some of you are still deathly afraid of the dark. And I think sometimes, you know, there's this kind of scale, this spectrum that I think we're kind of on with that. And my guess is, is that if you were really scared of the dark, when you went to sleep, you probably had one of those little night lights. And I was thinking about the nightlight. It's amazing how much comfort, being in a dark room, how much comfort just a tiny little light can give, that, the ability to sort of see in the room, how much comfort that little light can give. It doesn't 
actually help with any of the problems that are seen, right? You think about it. <laughs> it's like, if there actually was something to be scared of, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't actually help with any of that. But what it does do is it removes the uncertainty of what could be there. Um, and, and there's no measure of protection or anything with that. But here's the thing, is that it helps to alleviate the fears of what was unknown. Because what did it do? The light shone and gave you visibility to what is or what, 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 what is there, what is actually there. And my guess is that, um, you know, for us, as we kind of evaluate and think about the life we live, this world we live in, as adults, we long for light in the darkness. I'm not talking about a physical light as much as a, a spiritual light. And, and I think that we could use this word darkness as a good description for the world that we live in and its broken state. We talked about this last week. We said that the world is broken. One of the words that John uses is the world is darkened or it's in darkness. And that, I think, is an accurate description of where our world is. And, and it can also be even a description of the way that many of us have experienced life. Right? We've experienced anger. We've experienced fear, both within us or maybe expressed towards us. At times, we've experienced depression, resentment, discouragement, disappointment, right? These are parts of this darkness that we experience this world. Well, I want to encourage you this morning that it's into this darkness that Jesus shines the light from Scripture into our darkened world this morning. And what we're looking at, what we're coming across is uh, the second of seven of I am statements that we find here in the book of John. Every time we come across these I am statements, we're going to kind of drill into them because they're sort of like these anchor points that we come across as we're studying John. The I am statement this morning is Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world. The title of our sermon this morning is Light of the World, and we're going to see him unpack what does it mean that Jesus makes this claim, this statement, a defining claim about himself saying, I am the light of the world. And here's what we want to do this morning is we want to listen to Jesus and we want to hear what he said. I think so many times we're quick to assume or quick to answer for him or to put our words in his mouth. But this morning, we want to hear from Jesus and hear what he actually said. So again, passage before, did he say it? I don't know. Did he say this? He for sure said this. And so we're going to drill into this this morning. I am the light of the world. Let me give you the big idea of where we're going this morning. It's this is that uh, Jesus is the light that leads to true life. Jesus is the light that leads to true life. Before we go any further, let me just ask that God would teach us this morning as we uh, try to be as faithful as we can to his word this morning. Let's pray. God, we ask you for your direction and for your leading this morning. And God, um, as, as uh, we've been walking through this account of your life, Jesus, uh, as we've been learning and seeing, uh, Lord, what you have taught us about yourself. Uh, God, I pray that it would transform our hearts this morning. And Lord, we ask for your light to shine into the darkness that we are uh, experiencing. Uh, God, that we're um, even carrying some of us this morning. Uh, Lord, the darkness that we have, we pray that your light would bust through and that it would shine through, that it would break through into the darkness. And God, that you would lead us toward your true life. As we study your word this morning, lead us, we ask, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. 
Well, here's what we want to do this morning. We're going to kind of walk through this. And a little different, we're going to kind of go through the rest of chapter 8. It's a lot of verses, but we're not going to kind of different fashion. What I really want to do is drill in on this light of the world. And so we're going to use the chapter to sort of unpack uh, this phrase. Um, and then we may, in, in coming weeks, go back and kind of revisit some of the other uh, parts of chapter 8. But I want us to get a sense of the whole thing. And so we're going to have to move a little bit. Uh, broadly and, and um, at times quickly uh, through it, but I'm, I think when we walk away, we're going to see and understand um, what Jesus is saying here. Uh, look in your copy of Scripture at verse 12. It says this, uh, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, that word again kind of connects it to uh, what we, uh, where we just were uh, in the passage uh, before. If you were with us last week, we saw that Jesus was teaching on the final day of the Festival of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. And as he was teaching it, there was this water ceremony that was happening each and every day. The final day had this kind of super water ceremony. And so he's speaking there. Well, this is continued with this. This is still part of the teaching at the festival. That's when he says, again, Jesus spoke. So if the context for us is also here. Notice though, let me just kind of point this out. If you skip your eyes ahead to verse 20, it says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested because his hour had not yet Come. So verses 12 is the words he spoke. 20 gives us sort of the location or the context. Here's the first thing that I want us to understand this morning is that we would see the context and understand the claim that Jesus is making. I've said it before, and I want to kind of make sure we understand that the context in which these statements are made helps us to glean more meaning from them. And his teaching there at this festival of booths um, is very important for us. I mentioned last week it was one of the three pilgrimage festivals. And so all of the people would come to the city of Jerusalem for this festival. It was uh, part of it followed the lunar calendar. So it would happen like kind of late fall um, in like September, October, about the time that things were starting to get a little darker. Praise the Lord. Things are starting to get a little lighter for us. How many was excited to see the sun when you woke up this morning? I love that. The days are getting longer. I was informed by um, one of our elders, uh, Eric uh, Funky, that today is our first day in 2024 that has 11 hours of sunlight. Praise the Lord. And so, um, you know, there, so this is kind of on the opposite side. It's starting to get darker, but people would flock to Jerusalem. I spoke last week about the uh, the water ceremony, there was also sort of this lighting of, of these, these torches that would happen as part of the festival. On the last day of the festival, there were these four huge lamps that were lit and the temple court. Additionally, men of the temple would hold their tans, their tor these torches up and they would dance. And it was said that the glow from the temple mount would shine in all of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a hill and, and sort of set on a small mountain, but the Temple Mount sort of stands above it, and so the light would have been cast down and would have been visible from, um, from far away. And where Jesus is teaching, it says that he was teaching in the treasury. Well, the treasury is where the uh, offerings, the tithes were, were brought and given to uh, the temple, and that was located in the court of women. And so here you have Jesus saying these words in the very place. The court of women is where these torches took place. And so in the Mishnah, it records, it says, if you've never seen this ceremony, you've never seen a wonder in your life. 
And this happened, as I mentioned, and when the days are getting uh, a little shorter and physical darkness is more of a deal. You know, oftentimes we don't often take, or we, we take for granted how easy it is for us to have light, right? We walk to that wall, we push that button, all of a sudden light comes on. For a long, long time, for the people here this day, if they wanted light, right, there's a little bit of work that had to kind of go into that. And so to have this much light in one place and have this much light sort of spilling out, it would have been for the people perhaps one of the brightest things that they've ever seen apart from like the sunlight, right? A part of like a a, a sort of man-made, man-lit place. This would have been an incredible place. It was into these words, read it again, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Why does Jesus say it there? What was the point of of the context of it? Well, it was God who instituted this festival. And it was meant to be for them a signpost to point to God. And what they were doing is they were remembering what God had done and who God is. And what God did and who he is is that he was uh, this, is a, this, this picture of the light was a reminder, sort of a, a shining back on uh, that glory cloud that gave light to the people of God as they wandered the wilderness. At night, it was lit up like a pillar of fire and it would lead the people. During the day, it would provide shade. And so what they're doing here, again, the whole festival of tabernacles is, is looking back to and remembering and, and reflecting on uh, the provision of God to his people in the wilderness, this was a signpost pointing the people back to God and for them to remember and understand who God is. See, here's the problem, though. The problem of this is I believe that in Jesus' day, when he's saying these words, there was probably a strong contingency of the people that the festival had become the thing in and of itself. You know what I mean by that? Like, like they were so excited about, oh man, we get to go to Jerusalem, we get to experience all this, we get to see the light. Like in that moment, it was just kind of, it had become about the ceremony and about the thing. And my guess is, is there was a big part of, and this is why Jesus is saying it right here, is, is they were missing what it was, like the signpost was pointing to. They were missing what Jesus, or what it was all about. And so here you have it, like, Jesus is there and he's like, this is all pointing to me. This is all about me. I am the light of the world. And and, and if we could just kind of take a moment and, and recognize, I think we do the very same thing. There's all sorts of things that God has put in place to bless us that ultimately are supposed to point us to him. We take things that were meant to draw us into worship and to bring us to God, and then we end up worshiping the very things themselves. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, I mentioned this one before, but, you know, we we sometimes take good things and we make them God things. We take, uh, uh, we make things either, is it either a gift or is it it God? And family is one thing that is a a tremendous gift from the Lord, right? Like, we are uh, raised by... um, uh, parents were intended to, and, and uh, as we um, marry and, and, and have children, that, that, that family is supposed to be a place where uh, community is experienced and, and instruction is passed on. And, and, and you know that the family was instituted by God. It was his idea, his design. And I believe that the family was to be a larger picture of, of just who God is and our relationship with him, right? I mean, God is our 
heavenly father. Jesus referred to him as the father in this relationship, as father, son. We are adopted into God's family. I believe that the family, one of the reasons that God gave us family is not just family in itself, but it's, it's a way of understanding and experiencing and knowing the relationship and love and, 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 and community that's found in relationship with Christ and ultimately in Christ's family. But here's the thing is that we take family and we make that the central thing. And, and it meant to bring us to a place of worshiping him, but we end up worshiping our family or the relationships that we have. We do the same thing in a kind of different place. We do the same thing with money, right? Like we take the resources, the money that we have, and there's kind of, I guess, a few things you can do with your money, right? Like to boil it down to the most basic parts, you can, uh, you can spend your money, you can save your money, or you can give your money. That's kind of uh, sort of the you know, the kind of big things. But, but in all of that, what you're doing is you're, you're stewarding it, you're investing it, regardless of whether you're spending, saving, or giving it. If you're spending it, you're investing it into sort of your current reality, your current situation. Um, if you're saving it or investing it, you're investing in the future, and you're, you're stewarding it for the future. If you're giving it, you're hopefully investing in the kingdom of God. You're, you're investing into uh, God's work outside of you. But the question is, is these things that were meant to be, uh, I think, again, a blessing to us, uh, a, a demonstration of God's uh, provision for us, like he's, he, he gave us, he gives us the provision that we have, it was meant to be something that could lead us to thankfulness and ultimately uh, to worship. Yet what do we do? We worship the money itself. We worship the things that we buy. We worship the investment for the future. We, we worship even at times uh, the, the way that it makes us feel good to invest in other things. Yet that was, again, a way of worship and, and response stewarding God. If those two don't make sense, hopefully this one will. I believe that sometimes corporate worship, like what we're doing here this morning when we gather to sing songs, it can be more about the experience rather than the one that we're singing to or the one that we're worshiping as we gather. Have you ever found yourself in that, kind of caught up in the moment of the song, like, oh, I like this song, I like the way that it makes me feel, like, like, like this kind of rhythm, or like, that. oh, that sounds good. And we forget, we sort of remove ourselves for a minute, that wait, wait, we're singing this for a purpose and to a person. We're singing this to the person of God. And I think it's so easy for us to get caught up in this moment of worship that we miss out on the God that we're actually here to worship. I think that's what was happening here in this moment. See, if we're going to understand the, um, the, the meaning of this, we have to understand the context of it, right? And so uh, to see the context and understand the claim, we, we understand that, that Jesus was trying to right this wrong, correct their thinking. And it was here in the midst of this that he makes this eternity-altering claim. Don't miss what Jesus is saying to the people. For generations, they were waiting, looking, longing for the Messiah, he was going to be the one that was going to lead them into freedom that they were created for. They had all these reminders of that he was doing this. God had given them the law, the sacrificial system, these festivals. God is not silent. He had given them all of these signposts pointing to it that the Messiah is going to come. He's going to bring deliverance. For generations, they had gathered there in Jerusalem in the same way. They had celebrated this feast. This final night was meant to remind as the temple was lit up that God had provided his direction, his security, and he was going to again. 
And it's there, Jesus' face being illuminated by the temple light, surrounded by these crowds when he says, I am the light of the world. He's saying to the people, you're missing the point. This is all here so that you would look at me. This is all here so you would, that you would go after me. I'm here now. I am the light of the world. See, I think we have to understand kind of the context of it because it gives us a better picture of what the weight of what Jesus is saying here in this moment. But notice, it comes with a call to action, right? What does he say? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here's the second thing that we see here is that having the light requires our response. To have the light, we gotta respond. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's not really mincing words here. He's, he's kind of laying out sort of two pathways. There is kind of pathway one, and there's pathway two. Two things. The first option, the first pathway, what Jesus is saying here, because he says, again, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So the opposite must be true. If you fail to follow him, that you will continue then to walk in darkness, so the first option is apart from Jesus, you are stumbling in the dark. And I just want to be super clear this morning that without Jesus, darkness is what defines our life. There is no way of true understanding what life is about, how to truly live our ultimate purpose here apart from Jesus. And the problem is, I think sometimes we, we think that we can see, but, the, but we don't have vision. Helen Keller said it this way, the only thing uh, worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Helen Keller, obviously you know probably the story of her. I mean, she could not see, and how many people did she meet that she's like, you can see, but it doesn't sound like you, can, you have vision, that you can actually see what you're, what you're experiencing here. I think that's sort of relates back to or sort of gives us a picture of what I think our culture is. Our culture even, sadly, I would say not just culture, but even churches are filled with men and women who have sight but cannot see, who are blind. And part of the problem is we don't even know when we are blind. We find ourselves stumbling and grasping for all sorts of things. We find ourselves with beat up, like, you know, bruised toes and, and bloody shins, Right? If you've ever tried to stumble across a, a, a dark room, um, especially one that your young children have been playing in, like it's a dangerous thing, right? Like when you're walking through a dark place, especially, or if you've ever tried to like, uh, maybe you've been camping and, and you think you know sort of where the picnic table is or where that fire pit is after it's gone out or, or whatever. If you've been out in the woods and, and you, um, you, know, you get out of your tent at night and you need to um, try and walk, I mean, it's, it's just a dangerous move because what's gonna happen? You're gonna bump into something inevitably. If you don't have light shining, if you can't see, then you're going to bump in. That is our experience that we are born into. We are born into darkness. That is the place that our world is in. But what Jesus is saying here is that it doesn't have to be this way. With Jesus, you can have a light that leads to life. That is the second option. That is the second pathway that he gives. Is that with Jesus, you have light that leads to life. He is the light of life. And scripture is very clear. You cannot experience this apart from Christ. You cannot receive eternal life apart from Christ. You cannot fully enjoy this life apart from Christ. You cannot persevere trial with joy without Christ. You cannot find true healing in this life without Christ. There is no lasting hope for hardship without Christ. 
Our deciding factor is the path, the response that we're going to take. This is what he says here. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me. And so the question is, is are we going to follow? And by following, experience the light that we so desperately need in the darkness. And so here is the call that he's making. It's this, is that Jesus is calling you to follow. It's an invitation. How does he say it? He says, whoever follows me. The deciding factor between stumbling in the dark or having the light that leads to life is our decision to follow after Jesus. And so I want to just ask you a super uh, straightforward question, maybe not simple, but straightforward. Are you following him? Do you know him? Are you certain what following Jesus necessitates? Like, what does that look like? I would love for you to be able to answer these questions with confidence. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And I believe that as Jesus continues to teach there, the rest of this chapter, he unpacks this. So as I mentioned, what I want to do, a little different than typical, I want to just kind of pull out a couple of statements that he makes that I think all kind of point back to this this compelling statement of, of invitation to follow. What does it look like to follow I think there's five signs that we'll see that when you're following Jesus of of what it looks like. Here's the first is that you believe. If you're following Jesus, you will believe. Uh, John 8, 24, he says this. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe See, the word believe or to follow are almost synonymous in John's gospel. Because what Jesus is calling to when he's talking about belief, as we discussed um, uh, before, as we've been in this, is that he's prescribing a belief that produces a particular result. Right? Following Jesus is the byproduct of genuine belief in him. Let me say that again. Following Jesus is the byproduct of genuine belief in him. You see, the beliefs that we have produce a particular response. Uh, It hasn't been much of it this month. Some of you are rejoicing in this, but when the roads are slippery, right, my belief that the roads are slippery dictate or indicate, kind of produce the way that I'm going to drive on them. I can tell sometimes when people pass me on the highway that they don't believe the roads are slippery or they believe that their four-wheel drive whatever is going to get them through. And then how many times does it happen where you see them in the ditch like a couple miles later? I'm not happy about it. I'm just like, you know, it's just reassuring to know that like that's just kind of, yeah, they understood now. Right, so my slower road, my the snowy roads make me drive slower. Um, my belief that I will feel better when I am exercising will encourage or hopefully help me to work out. I don't know about you. I tend to sort of have a love hate relationship with working out. When I'm doing it, I love it. Uh, when I stop, and then it's been a while, it's really hard to begin again. But one of the things that helps is that as I begin to do it again, it's like, oh, I do actually feel better when I'm moving and picking up heavy things and sweating a little bit, right? In the same way that my belief that this Bible that we have is the word of God, it produces the response that I will want to study it. I will read it. I will learn it. I will apply it, right? The belief that we have produces the response. All belief produces a particular response. 
byproduct. What Jesus is saying here is we're gonna fo- if we're going to follow him, it begins with belief, believing in and believing on Jesus. It's the defining mark of someone who follows him. You believe he is who he says he is, and you believe that he is worth following. And so my question for us is have you, do you, believe in and on Jesus by faith? Do you believe he is the light of the world? Do you believe he is the son of God? Do you believe he is the Messiah, the Savior? That's what John is trying to convince us of. He wants us to see who Jesus is, that we would believe and that in believing that we would find life. Following begins with belief. Let's keep going. Here's the second one that we see. Skip ahead to verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, right? So he's talking to those who had believed. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You draw near. That's the second thing. When you follow Jesus or to follow Jesus, it looks like drawing near. I think we could all agree that if you're driving behind someone, following someone, it's pretty tricky uh, to, um, to follow them if uh, you aren't very close. Some of you have tried to lead someone to a place. Remember pre-GPS days? I don't think we experience this as much anymore, right? Someone's just like, hey, you want to follow me there? It's like, oh, I'll just put it in my phone. I'll, I'll find my own way. You know, whatever Siri says, that's where I'm going, right? And so that's, that's, where, that's where I'm going. But pre-GPS days, uh, you would follow people places. And uh, you had to stay close enough, especially if you're going through some of those intersections, right? And, and inevitably, you follow that guy that's like, yeah, he can make it. And he kind of pulls through the yellow. And you're like, dude, it was, barely, it was barely yellow when you were going through. How was I supposed to follow you through that thing, right? And then they'd pull over and kind of wait. And man, pre-cell phone days, it was the Wild West, right? We're just trying to like look for each other on the interstate and follow all that, right? But like if you, if you leave too much space, it's really hard to follow. And then they make a turn or kind of get away or get, you know, there's some space. So what does it do? It means that you got to stay on them. You got to stay close. And there was road trips I remember going on where it's like sometimes that worked well, sometimes it didn't, but you got to stay close. See, here's the thing is that uh, I've experienced this, maybe you have too, is that distance deteriorates relationship. When there's distance in our relationship, it affects it. I can't tell you how many times I experienced this, even during COVID when we weren't seeing each other and people were kind of, you know, we were all over the map on that and kind of different places. And I'm, I remember having conversations with people I hadn't talked to in months. And then we get together and like, man, it's just really good to be together. I, I thought for some reason, like, you know, you hated me. And I was like, why? Like, why would you think that? Like, I, have I ever said or indicated or done anything? No, it just, it's been distance in the relationship. Distance deteriorates relationship. See, part of following Jesus is to remain close to him. As a pastor, you know, over the years, there's been a number of people that I've encountered that are struggling spiritually. They're bitter with God. They, um, they feel like God is distant. But upon investigation, by their own admission, I'll ask, well, what are you doing to draw near to him? If God feels distant or God feel, if, you're, if you're frustrated or, or upset with the Lord, what are you doing to draw near to him? Are you engaged in, your, in the Bible? Are you engaged in the community of believers in the church? Are you um, getting around some other people that are pointing you to? And oftentimes the answer is, well, no, I'm not doing any of that. Well, 
you're, you're not abiding, you're not drawing near. And that's what Jesus is inviting them to. He says, if you, to those who believed in me, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It's, it's this drawing near. James 4, 8 makes this promise. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a promise that is. If you are far from God, it is never because he has abandoned you. Following Jesus is first about relationship. It's not what we're getting from him. It's about being with him, being in his presence, near him. And so if we want to follow, we need to draw near. Are you drawing near to Jesus? Third, uh, we listen. You listen. If you're following Jesus, you listen to what he is saying. Uh, Skip ahead again to verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. So if you are of God, you hear God. See, Jesus is not merely talking about hearing the word, but I would say you could kind of describe it as bending your ear to the word of God. Uh, You can hear someone but not listen, right? Uh, Sometimes, let me just be honest for a moment, uh, my wife can attest to this, that sometimes this is true of me when Bree is trying to talk to me. Every once in a while, maybe you've experienced this when I realize, oh wait, she's been talking for a while. <laughs> when did she start? And what did I miss up to this point? Right? I'm trying to like kind of use some context, kind of go back and sort of see, you know, I'm like, oh, she thinks I've been listening to her. Right? It, maybe I was listening, but I wasn't hearing her. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I have to say something to the effect of, hey, pretend I didn't hear anything that you said. And you were telling me for the first time, like, what would you, how would you like say that again? You know, and I I think here's the thing is that it's not simply enough to read the Bible or to hear the word preached, but we have to listen to what it says. There's a difference, right? There's a difference. I believe that um, discipline leads to desire, which leads to delight. Some of us, we are in the discipline phase of our reading scripture. We're just doing it because we know we got to. But I believe that as you continue with that, that that's going to lead you to a desire to want more, and eventually you're going to delight in it. Hopefully, it's not just about hearing the word of God, but that you are listening and receiving, comprehending, applying what it's saying. That is what he's inviting them to. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. You listen. Let's keep going. Verse 51, again, I know we're jumping through a lot. We're passing over a bunch. I just wanted us to... I think all of this is kind of going back to what does it look like to follow? The invitation is, if you want the light of of Jesus, that you need to follow him. So verse 51, it says, Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This isn't just about listening. This is about then obeying. Obeying. You obey. Jesus said in Luke 11, 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's about hearing and keeping. Basic and humble obedience is one of the most overlooked practices in the Christian life. To hear the word of God and then to respond. I think for some of us, we think that the word of God is subjective in the way that we apply it. What do we do instead? Well, we ignore or we delay. Uh, Maybe worse, we debate what should be clear. Like, is that really what it means? Is that really what God was saying here? Did God really say that? I mean, it reminds me a lot of what was asked in the garden. I mean, God was pretty clear about what not to do and what to do. 
And what was the question asked? Did God really say not to do that? There's so many things that God has clearly said in his word. And I think so many times we approach it and we say, did God really say? And it's all of a sudden, it's up for debate. It's not clear in how we are uh, responding. And so I've said it this way in the past, but the Bible is not a term paper to be debated. It's not a suggestion to be considered. It's not even a sentimental thought to encourage you in a dark place. It is God's authoritative word, and it is to be obeyed. And that is our grace, church. Listen, we are mistaken if we think that it is a weight upon us. It is actually the pathway to lift the weight that is upon us. We are slaves in our sin, and God is giving us the pathway out, and that is to obey his perfect prescribed will for us. The more closely we can walk aligned with the things that he has laid out for us, the more peace, the more joy, the more fruitfulness that we will experience in our life. I am convinced of it. I've said it many times before, and it's not original to me, but every time God says don't, he's really saying don't hurt yourself. In the same way, every time he's telling us to do, he's telling you to do something that is ultimately for your good and for his glory. And so, one of the ways that we experience real-time sanctification is that when we know God's word is calling us to do something and then we do it. I just wonder, is there something right now that you know, even already that you've heard in this sermon that you're like, I need to do that. God's grace upon your life is that you would then go and obey and do what God has called you to do. And here's the last one, and this is that we trust. Part of the failure to respond to Jesus by the people was their failure to trust in who he was. And he makes this claim at the very end of the chapter, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They distrusted him so much that the next verse, verse 59, says they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. What a bold statement to make. And the most a crucial component of leadership is that we would trust. It's really hard to follow someone you don't trust, right? Like anytime I've led something, part of my leadership has been trying to garner trust among the people that I'm trying to lead. Sometimes that trust is given to me by maybe the perceived experience or perceived knowledge, and people are kind of quick to assign that. Other times, it's getting a little bit like I got a little gray coming in. When my girls are with me, I look a little older. I used to, I'd look, I, I looked like 13 for like well into my 30s, okay? I've just kind of crossed past uh, some of that. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I maybe don't get judged. I mean, I'm telling you, I used to walk into places when I was a youth pastor. I would walk in with a group of teenagers, and they're like, where's your leader? I'm like, I'm right here. Like, you know, here's, <laughs> there's no perceived trust in, in that. And if you don't trust someone, you can't. Follow them. Uh, think about someone in your life who has a measure of authority, but you struggle to follow. Whether that's a politician, a parent, teacher, professor, employer, leader, right? If you struggle to follow them, my guess is there's some lack of trust in that person. That's what makes it hard to follow them. When you don't trust a person's leadership, you're constantly skeptical of their motives and their decisions and even at times their character. And I would say this isn't true of just human leadership. It's true of Jesus' leadership in your life. If you don't trust Jesus and who he is, it's really hard to follow him. 
The opposite is true, though. If you trust him implicitly with who he is, then it's very easy to follow him because you know who he is and where he's leading and what he is doing. Psalm 910 says, Those who know your name put their trust in you. For O you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And so can I just ask you this morning, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that he will never forsake those who seek him? Do you believe that he is in control? Do you believe that he cares for you, that he wants to lead you and shepherd you and show you his love? If you don't trust him, you won't be able to follow him. And so as we kind of stand back and look at this list, this is, again, what comes out of chapter 8. I know I moved quickly through it, but I wanted to unpack the statement that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will experience this light, right? You will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of light. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. You believe him. You draw near to him. You listen to him. You obey him, and you trust him. If we're doing this, this is how we follow closely with him. This is how we stay, uh, we stay close in that. And if we are, you never need walk in darkness because you are following the light that leads to life. In the same way that that light lights up the unknown, the light of Christ lights up the unknown and the darkness of our world. It gives light where there is darkness. He brings hope. He brings peace. He gives leadership. He offers comfort and strength, and he leads us into paths of righteousness. Let's praise the Lord for this gift of light that he has given us. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to follow you more closely, that you would, God, lead us into a greater place of trust and acknowledging your wisdom and your leadership over us. God, we understand and are reminded again that we live and experience darkness here. And Lord, this darkness, um, God, brings confusion and often brings uh, pain, uncertainty. Lord, would you shine into the darkness of our world, God, of our own hearts, of our life. Lord, we ask that your light would shine. And that by following you, God, that we would experience the life that you came to bring. Lord, I pray that that would be the case this morning for anyone who is here. If they would look back on, on this week, kind of this season, and say this has been a place or a season, a time of darkness, God, that they would see that in following you, that, that you would shine light into that. So God, help us to remain close. Help us to trust and to believe. God, thank you for the gift that we find in Jesus. We praise you. We Love you for that. And we ask this in the name of your son. Amen.